Welcome to the Terminal Value Podcast, where we bring you business-focused interviews with thought leaders and executive decision-makers to deliver actionable information for founders, CEOs, and finance leaders to take your organization to the next level. I'm your host, Doug Atberg, and I'm looking forward to getting the conversation started. Welcome to the Terminal Value Podcast. We have Mike Murawski with us today. And Mike's a really unique guy um, because what he did was he actually had a, a, now Mike, correct me, was it a venture, private equity, or both? Uh, It was a a private equity fund. Okay, Uh, yeah. Really, but we did individual deals. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah, he had a private equity backed business that put together a portfolio of a hundred million dollars in multi-unit, uh, you know, multi-unit properties in real estate. So by just about any anybody's definition, this would kind of seem like the pinnacle of successful achievement. Um, but it didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, and that's what our conversation is going to be about today. Uh, it will be about recovering from major catastrophe. So spoiler alert, the Cinderella story <laughs> had, a, had a rough turn, uh, but it's also having a uh, the other side of the Cinderella story, which Mike's going through a comeback as well. Uh, Mike, tell us a little bit about this business you built and uh, and the, the travails that you went through. Sure. Hey, Doug, I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, it's easy to laugh about today, but um, trust me, a decade ago, it wasn't as easy to laugh about. So, I bet. Um, today, I, today I, I, I learned a lot by those mistakes and, and really, um, you know, and I'll talk about some of those as I go, go through this. But, you know, I've been in real estate 30 years. I, I started out as a, re, as a residential sales agent. Um, I happened to have a, a contracting business and woke up one morning yeah. and looked at my wife at the time and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm burned out. Um, so we sold the company. I took a year off and I went on to build, I, I went on uh, to house hack during that year off. Uh-huh. Her and I house hacked a couple of houses long yeah. before it was sexy to do. So, yeah. And- I was gonna say, and for you know, since uh, since this is uh, that uh, re- you know, kind of real estate uh, tricks isn't a normal topic of conversation on this show for the for people who aren't in the audience who aren't familiar. House hacking is basically where what you do is you'll move into say like a duplex or something like that, and you'll rent out the other side of it. So essentially, you know, depending on whether it's a duplex or triplex or what rents are in your area, it's essentially a way to live for very little to completely for free. Right. So. Um... So I house hacked a couple houses during the time uh, I met a real estate agent who was really successful. And I remember hearing Jim Rohn years ago say, uh, success leaves clues. If you follow somebody successful, chances are you'll cut your learning curve and and you can be a little more successful quickly too. So I I, um, went to him and said, hey, I think I'd like to go in the real estate business. And and he encouraged me to do it. He said, I think you'll be good at it. And I said, well, can I come and shadow your team? And he said, no, he goes, I'll do one better. He goes, I'll make you a cassette tape. And this is how long ago this was. I don't think <laughs> could make a cassette tape today, but um, he, uh, he, he made me this cassette tape and I listened to it over and over and over again. I burned it out. My first nine yeah. months in the business, I sold 78 single family houses. That's pretty good. I mean, that's like really good. <laughs> Well, it's really good when you know that the average real estate agent in our country sells 12 to 15 uh, houses a year. So I wonder what they do the rest of the 11. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and uh, I mean, and you know, before, you know, without getting a little bit off topic, 
Um, and this is kind of the crux of most businesses, uh, you know, especially if it's any kind of professional services business, is that you end up spending a lot of your time prospecting, whether, you know, and a lot of people will do like, say, Chamber Rotary, uh, you know, and of course, right, I go to Rotary on Wednesdays. Um, and so, but the whole thing is, right, you know, it, you know, if you can build systems to bring interested prospects in so that you don't have to go out and kind of scratch around like chickens in my backyard, uh, you know, looking for them, uh, you can get some of these high volume numbers, you know, and I, I think it's um, was it? I, I read some of the numbers where some of the top producing agents uh, will will sell an average, or their teams will sell more an average of more than one property a day, which is you know like over three hundred and sixty five a year, which is just crazy to think about. But yeah. of course, that that's going to be something that's tough to do as a solo agent. But well, a, a good agent won't work weekends, so there's only yeah. two hundred and twenty. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> which is still you know incredible numbers so yeah especially when you look at the at the uh uh value of the average home sale today in different sure ways. so yeah but but anyway yeah we're getting off topic kind of keep back keep going right. with the backstory i'm a numbers guy i love to talk about numbers so um so i went in the real estate business i sold uh, a ton of houses i sold i put a team together and sold 125 listings a year did that for about 10 or 12 years consecutively. 2005, I saw the market shifting and I yeah. knew I would have to go do something different because uh, the market was going to fall out. And I wasn't really sure what was going to happen and didn't know what the magnitude of, of this switch in the market was going to be. And so um, I saw the market starting to shift. I'd always wanted to be in the apartment business. Yeah. So I decided to go in the apartment business. I bought a 11 unit apartment building. I raised a little bit of private capital. I said, this is going to be easy. And I went after it. Um, I raised $18 million in 30 months. I bought $60 million worth of real estate. It was about 4,000 apartments in five markets. And then I went on to build a property management company managing 7,500 units. Um, and uh, built a hundred million dollar company, basically. And yeah. Did so yeah, this. So yeah, that, that, I was gonna say that thus far, this sounds like it. You know, it, you know, it, this kind of sounds like it, it could be. You know, a motivational. <laughs> this is how I built my. You know, built a life of success, and here's how you can too. Sure. Except. <laughs> yeah. Enter pride and ego. <laughs> <laughs> Except. Yeah. Enter, enter pride and ego. Um, so here, a couple of mistakes I made along the way, right? I grew way too fast, very unstable as a company. Saw that uh, um, uh, the more I brought on, the less productive my team behind me was and things weren't getting done like they should. Yeah. Instability. Um, I didn't raise enough capital. So I was undercapitalized as a company and each, each individual property was undercapitalized. And then uh, I was over leveraged, which means that I had 65 or I had 85% loan to value on $60 million worth of real estate. I don't know who was worse, me for taking the money or the banks for giving it to me. Um, and it, but I should have been 65 to 75% yeah. LTB. Yeah. Well, and, and I was going to say, because, you know, I mean, now, you know, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of people listening are per, will be pretty uh, familiar with uh, with real estate. But, you know, a lot of people yeah, for a lot of people, the real estate terms they think about are like their single family property terms, you know, which is where a 
you know, a traditional loan would be where you'd have 20% down. You know, if you have some of the non-standard loans, you know, from the federal government, you can go up to like, say, you know, if you can go say up to maybe about 5% down, I think there's a few programs that do like three and a half percent down or something like that. But for commercial property, um, 30% down is, is standard. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, it's closer to 40% down. Um, you know, the loan to value ratios for commercial properties are typically not nearly as high as residential properties. And so if you were carrying, let's see, what did you say you were carrying 85% loan to value? Yeah, right. That is a very, very heavy uh, degree of leverage for a commercial property. Um, and, and yeah, because I think anybody who's in commercial, their, their teeth are probably chattering right now. Well, listen, the banks today that come to you and say, hey, you could do this deal for 80%, you know, I, 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 don't do it. It's not worth the, the, because when the market shifts and the market is going to shift, the market always shifts, but when the market shifts, you don't have enough uh, equity in there to protect yourself. People move out, you know, um, occupancies drop, NOI drops, you don't have enough to pay bills. You want to keep your bills down and you do that by creating more, uh, equity. So. Yeah. Well, and, and I was actually going to ask because, you know, you're talking, you were talking about kind of a, the 2005 situation and because of course in 2005 to 2007, right. You know, prices were just going up a hockey stick. They were growing like crazy. Kind of sounds a lot like today. And so what I keep thinking is that, uh, okay, at some point it feels like this expansion is going to fall out of bed. Um, and because, you know, I'm a little bit of an econ nerd. And one of the things that I like to do is I go to the, I go to the reports from the St. Louis Fed. And one of the things that I've been tracking is the total indebtedness across all sectors, right? That's, you know, federal, state, local, private, mortgage, student loan, everything. And the whole ball of wax right now is north of $90 trillion. So, yeah, so that means that if you assume, I don't know what the average interest rate is, but if you assume around a 5% interest rate, that means you have about four and a half trillion dollars a year going out just to service interest. Um, it feels like that's getting to the point where it's going to consume most of whatever productivity growth you'd had and your current growth might be more from debt expansion than actual growth. I, I don't know, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where my intuition says that the debt expansion has gotten to the point where it's Go, there's going to be some kind of mean reversion just because I don't think it can continue expanding at the rate it has. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting uh, getting off topic. So You and I could go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I love that conversation. I, I love to talk about this stuff because, you know, it's happening. It's happening right in front of us and people here. I'm looking at a deal this morning, underwriting a deal this morning, and I'm talking to the broker and the broker, uh, the broker and I are talking about the deal. And I said, who's going to win this deal? The guy with the most money or the guy who's cash? He goes, probably the guy with the most money, you know, who's going to pay the most for the property. And I'm like, well, that's crazy because, you know, he goes, I know he goes, but, but what can I say? You know, the seller's greedy and, you know, people are paying more than properties are worth. P and E's are out of whack. Fundamentals are not stable. They're out of whack. Just be careful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, precisely. I mean, and, you know, because of course, you know, depending on how the deal is financed, if, you know, say like, you know, if it's financed with a traditional loan, the seller is going to go for highest for highest total price because, you know, they're going to get cash at the end of the day and whoever has their nose be leveraged, that's not the seller's problem anymore. Another thing to think about is once you transact, their problem has just become your problem. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and anyway. I, appraisers are just as bad today because they're letting these deals go by. And they're 
what they're doing is they're not they're not selling deals today on current operational fundamentals. Yeah. So on current NOI, they're selling it on first year pro forma NOI, saying you're going in, you're doing all this rehab, you're completing these properties, you're rent, you're raising the rents. Now you got first year pro forma NOI, and they're selling it at a at today's cap rate on that future number. So you wow. have to do all this work to get there, but the appraisers are letting it go through. So, yeah, that, that's, know, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, especially because it's like, you know, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm a value guy, you know, I, and, you know, and what that means is that, you know, I've, you know, I miss out on every major market expansion because I don't understand it. <laughs> you know, I've missed out on a whole bunch of this one. Cause I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, so for, so I look for value and things like that just kind of just, makes my the back of my neck tingle <laughs> because I'm like, no, you know, value is value. But of course, that, you know, that doesn't really matter in the current environment. It will at some point, but it just doesn't today. Yeah. But anyway, keep going. But totally off topic there. So 2005 rolls around. I buy all this real estate. I build this $100 million company um, over a 30 month period. I'm sitting and having lunch with my CFO in 2008 and the news happens to be on. Yeah. And there's people that are walking out of Lehman Brothers carrying boxes and not one or two people, but yeah. dozens of people, dozens and dozens. And I look across the table and this was a fluke thing because we would never go somewhere typically to watch the news. And mm -hmm. we, I, I look across the table and I go, we're screwed, aren't we? He goes, yeah, we're in big trouble. And I do not, I did not at that moment understand the magnitude of those comments. I did not understand how bad, how big this was going to be. Um, so as 2008 happened and the world turned upside down, my company started to unravel. Like I said, yeah. I grew very unstable as a company. I didn't stabilize properties. I was way over leveraged. I didn't raise enough capital. Um, I did something really silly. I pulled out of my private placement memorandum, my PPMs, mm -hmm. uh, the provision that said, hey, if there's a problem, Doug, I can come back to you and ask for capital and you have to put capital back in the deal. Um, I took that provision out because like you said, the market was going like a hockey stick yeah. and I thought I'm never going to need that. Right. And then the market changed. Yeah. So as the market changed, um, People moved out of my properties. NOI dropped. I couldn't figure out how to mitigate the losses. Uh, couldn't pay my bills. Again, being over leveraged. Yeah. Didn't pay attention to the fundamentals or the details, nor did I listen to people closest to me, my closest circle of people mm -hmm. telling me that they didn't like some of the things going on. Now, if you don't mind me asking, uh, you were saying people moved out. Now, <clears throat> I would think that because, you know, during... Uh... Um, you know, during 2008, right, that's when a whole bunch of people were losing their houses. I would think that the general economics should have supported people moving into apartments unless you were at like the very high end of the market, in which case, um, you know, in, in which case I would imagine that the, um, you know, the implosion would have hit those people harder and they'd need to downshift that. I mean, so we maybe out of scope, but I'm just curious. Primarily in a, in a B-class market workforce uh -huh. housing, what people did was they started to double up. So oh. people, people who had two bedrooms moved into one bedrooms, people that were single living by themselves doubled up with people, people moved back home. Oh, um, gotcha. 
here i'll give you an example i owned a property in a in a small town in indiana that when we bought the property was considered the number one city in the country to buy to raise a family in uh-huh. um, on a list of like 275 yeah. right within nine months that property was number 274. um so um, what, what happened was it, it was heavily in the manufacturing business for yeah. car parts, car part, radio knobs, dashboard yeah. components, seat components, beating for seat liners, you know, those types of products. And when the car industry got hit and then the transportation industry got hit right after that, yeah. it, it, you know, people didn't have jobs, so they couldn't pay their bills. People, people moved out. Um, you know, people are still affected by 2008 today as a result. Anyhow, um, so I couldn't pay my bills. Oh, th this property, I have a property manager call me on Monday morning uh -huh. and she's in tears. And she says, I don't know how to say this. She goes, I have 32 moving trucks in the parking lot this morning and I don't have a move out for 45 days. She goes, I don't know what's going on. So people just left. They up and left, um, and and it, it's some of it was uh, based on the market we were in. Some of it was just based on you know that kind of stuff didn't happen in Texas, but it happened in the Ohio Valley. Okay, we so yeah. um, that's I mean that yeah that that's just crazy to think about. I mean because you know normally when you put when you put a forecast together, you you know like you go okay I'm going to have a certain amount of churn, you know, and if people move out, I'll advertise, I'll you know I'll I'll get people back in. But, you know, when you have, say, like a shock, like a whole bunch of people moving out, doubling up, you know, all of a sudden a bunch of people lost their employment or they had to downshift in employment. You, 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 you had this kind of this big vacancy bubble that probably took, I guess, if I recall, it took about two to three years to really kind of get occupancies back up to. I mean, because you're. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's from what I from what I understand in most commercial properties like uh, apartments, it's about 80 to 85 percent occupancy that kind of gets you to a pretty, you know, to a, you know, a healthy but not impressive net operating income. And if you're up around 90, 95, 98, that, you know, that's usually when you tend to have pretty good profits. But if your occupancy is below that, you're bleeding money left and right. Yeah, the metrics usually run around 87 percent. You're okay. Your break, your break even 92% you're making money. Yeah. 90, 95 to 98% you are, your rents are too low. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of, there's kind of those sweet spots in there. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Um, so, so I started to, what, what I thought was, Hey, this is just a recession. This last 17 or 18 months, I've been involved in other recessions in the past. I 10%, 12% correction in the marketplace. Well, this thing lasted seven or eight years. It was a 40% correction. How do you weather the storm? Um, so what I decided to do was I, I, I said, well, let me move money from profitable companies to non-profitable. I had 38 different companies. I said, let me just shift some money back and forth. A couple months, this thing's going to be over, blow over. I'll put the money back. It'll be fine. And nobody will ever know. Well, I go to my attorney and my accountant and they both say, yeah, you can do that. Just leave a paper trail. I said, no problem. We left a paper trail, but I didn't disclose it to my investors. Oh, so, whoops. Yeah. So for non-disclosure, I, I, I wound up being charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Um, that, go ahead. You look like you I was, was going to say, yeah, that, that I'm. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm just, so t tell me about the day when you heard about that. <clears throat> and, you know, because I'm, I'm just kind of trying to, I'm trying to imagine kind of just what that, uh, what that emotional process would feel like. Which because day? I mean, you, you know, kind of the, the day when, when it became apparent that, no, you, you're, you're going to get charged for wire fraud and this thing's not going to blow over. <laughs> so, um, so there was, um, there was about 700 days in a row. And here's what I mean by that. I got indicted in, well, I came back from family vacation in August of 2010. And when I walked in on Monday morning, my ex-partner handed me two business cards and said, you need to find a criminal attorney. I said, a criminal attorney? I said, I knew we were in trouble, but what he said, I can't talk to you anymore. I said, you oh, what? Um, oh goodness so so that was like day one but then i got sentenced in 2013 so that's when i went away um so you know when i say there was like 700 days there yeah <laughs> where i couldn't I, I had to mitigate every day and wonder what it was going to be like and when the phone rang my stomach dropped and you know it it was a terrible feeling i tried to figure out you know Listen, because of my crime, five years before I got in trouble, I would have been fined by the SEC, told to go back straighten my business out, don't let it happen again, but you wouldn't have been put to put in jail. Yeah. Today, they sentence you to prison and they put you away. They destroy your business. They destroy your family. And, you know, it's just yeah. kind, kind of the way the world is today. So, um yeah, well, the good news is there's a there's a redemption story here. Yes. Uh, so uh, so you're you're so you know you've uh, you, you've basically hit what many would consider to be rock bottom, but that's not the end of the line. Tell us where it goes from there. Yeah. So um, I go to prison uh, in um, July of 2013, and I think my life's over. I, I'm you know walking around every day wondering how I'm going to get through today, much less 10 years and, and yeah. what am I going to do? Um, I'm in prison about three weeks and then my wife decides she's going to divorce me. Um, when my wife divorced me, it wrecked me. Uh, the joke uh -huh. in prison actually was take his shoelaces. We think he's going to hurt himself. Um, That's, I don't want to laugh, but it's like, it's just, oh my goodness, how, how much worse can this get? Well, what I said to you at the beginning of the show before we started was I can laugh about it today. Yeah. I couldn't right. laugh about it then, right? It's, I don't think I could either. You know, here, listen, God's got a plan. And, you yeah. know, it's he, he's always at work. And that's how I look at it. So so I'm in prison about six weeks. And every day I just, you know, I, I, I can barely find my way out of bed in the morning and find my way to, to work. And how am I going to get through? And um I, I had gone from running marathons to being 35 pounds overweight. I hated myself, just couldn't understand what I did. And so I walk in the gym one day and I was just window shopping. I wasn't looking to buy anything at this point. And this guy walks over to me and he goes, look, he goes, quit feeling the way you're feeling. He said, you can get this 10 years back. He said, they can take your business, they can take your real estate, they can take your money, they can destroy your family, but what they can't take is who you are and what you're made of. He said to me, he goes, come to my class every day, start working out, you'll start to feel better, yeah. lose weight, 
he said, you know what? Nobody can dictate your future for you. Only you can. And I don't know what it was, Doug, but there was a defining moment yeah. where all of a sudden it was like the switch flipped, right? Yeah, I was, this, is, this is like a Rocky Three Apollo Creed kind of moment here. <laughs> That's a great. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the one. I mean, they're cheesy uh, as heck, but I just absolutely love the Rocky movies. Yeah, good. Um, so I, I don't know what it was. I started going to the gym. I started working out. I started feeling better, losing weight. Um, and then I decided to go to college. I took a four year program. I, I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books. I wrote one book called Exit Plan, Your Complete Guide to Multifamily Investing and Why You Need an Exit Plan Before You Buy. Um, love to give your listeners a copy at the end of the show. I wrote a book on property management. I wrote an ethics course. I taught real estate investing, property management, and ethics in prison for six years. Um, I went, uh, I was on an outreach program, went into the community. I told my story like 40 times to small business owners and local college students, met a professor from the university of Minnesota. He and I co-authored a paper together that we had published in the business journal of ethics. Uh -huh. And, um, as a result of that, um, it gets taught at the collegiate level for forensic accounting and sales and marketing classes. Uh-huh. You know, I'm back home. I came home in uh, 2020, the week they closed the world down for the pandemic. So as I came out of prison, everybody else went into prison. <laughs> um, and I, you know, have been uh, building a coaching and training company since then. Recently was approved by the SEC to go back and sponsor deals, be an issuer of securities. So today I, I coach people. I partner with my coaching clients uh, and go into the into real estate deals. I, um, we just closed a deal in, in Tampa, Florida, 40 units. So life is different today. It's a lot huh. different than it was. Um, there's still broken things in my life, <clears throat> but I tell my story because I want people to understand how easy it is to make a mistake mm -hmm. and that, um, you can, um, excuse me. Um, you don't have to let your past define you, that you're not a product of your past, that you're a product of what you do today and, and, and move yourself forward. I, I think that is an excellent message. I mean, and, you know, uh, particularly because see, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, and you, you figure that your working career, you know, if is going to last, you know, if you're if you kind of have a standard type of career path about 40 years. Um, it's like, you know, if, if you follow an entrepreneurial type of career path, you know, or a founder type of career path, it can last basically as long as you want, because, you know, a, you know a, assuming that, you know, you're the one who's, you know, who's owning your business or whatever, you basically decide when you're done. But let's just for, for the sake of argument, say 40 to 50 years, right? So with you know, over the course of four to five decades, something is probably going to go sideways. I mean, Hopefully it doesn't, but you know, something is, you know, there's going to be some major disruption that you have to work through. And I think it can be really easy to get you know, to, or to be upset when whenever there's a major setback that you have to come back from. Um, so, but I think that you know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to air this interview is because I think that it's really just important to understand to just keep that forward-looking focus. And you know, it's you know, even if you hit all the way down to rock bottom, just Find that next thing you're going to do and keep moving forward. Uh, spoken excellently, you know, 
you you i think that we have to take one step in, put one foot in front of the yeah. other every single day you know they say that um that you, if you grow one percent a day yeah. you'll grow 365 yeah. percent throughout the year and you you know that's a major change but the one yeah. percent a day when we focus in on that it's not, not not a lot right and then yeah. i think that's where people get discouraged and sit back is they don't see enough so as much as you have to see where you've been yeah. to see where you are today don't let where you've been dictate where you're going to go tomorrow exactly exactly and i think that is is exactly the message that i would want to convey um too which is that you know because yeah the um you know that you know the just always be always have that forward looking view and you know just be, you know just be, you know if things have gone well in the past don't assume that means that it's going to continue going well in the future you're always going to have to go back and earn it and yeah. if things have been rough in the past don't assume that that means that they're destined to stay that way you know you're always going to have to go out and, and earn the future absolutely all right well uh well uh mike uh, let everybody know where they can find out a little more yeah, sure. Um, appreciate it. First of all, um, you can reach me directly uh, on my email at mike at mycoreintentions.com. I, uh, I love to network with people. I'm very awesome. open. Um, I'm transparent with my story, as you could see. If I can ever add value to your network or uh, come and speak, you know, let me know. I, I'm open to do that. Um, if you hang out on social media, wherever you hang out, I'm probably yeah. there. Okay. <laughs> uh, Please go like me, love me, follow me, subscribe, you know, YouTube and, and uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever. Um, and uh, go grab a copy of my book, Exit Plan. I wrote okay. that book because it, uh, I wrote the book around the fact that I had, I'd gone to so many seminars and training and book, read books and tapes. And all these great trainers teach you how to go in a deal yeah. and buy a deal and run a deal but nobody teaches you how to get out. Funny how that works. <laughs> I wanted people to understand, you know, hey, listen, I, I, I subscribe to the Warren Buffett model that the yeah. best time to sell is never. But I think you need to know how to maximize your profit too. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what I teach in Exit Plan, right? Is how to maximize your profit and get out. Well, and you know, was uh, I think there's a you know there's an old stock and uh, commodity market uh, phrase you know that's you know because like you know people talk about where the markets are when markets get thin and you know people says well every market's too thin when you want to get out you know it's you know typically the time when you need to get out is not when things are going well it's when things are rough and when yeah. things are rough there are not a lot of people looking to buy and they're usually really really aggressive on their offers. Funny, right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, you know. Every Every market is going to be too thin if you have to get out. So that's that's the thing you have to think about. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Uh, well. Hey, Mike. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. I mean, it means a lot to me, and I I, I hope it'll mean a lot to our, our audience. I'm sure it will. Um, okay. But uh, but yeah, I just hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate it. Good seeing you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Terminal Value Podcast. Share it with your friends by sending them to TerminalValuePodcast.com. For more information, please visit BusinessOfLifeLLC.com for full access to Doug's products and services. All rights reserved. No part of this broadcast may be produced in any form by any means without written permission from Business of Life, LLC. 
All trademarks and brands referred to herein are the property of their respective owners.